Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. In this episode, we go behind the scenes of director Martin Scorsese's new film, Silence. Based on a novel by Shusako Endo, Silence stars Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver as two Jesuit missionaries in search of their missing mentor, played by Liam Neeson. They face the ultimate test of faith when they travel to Japan, where Christianity is outlawed, to find him. The film is a passion project of Mr. Scorsese, who has spent decades trying to bring the novel to the big screen. Mr. Scorsese received both the DGA's Feature Film Award and the Academy Award for his 2006 film, The Departed, and the DGA's Dramatic Series Award for the pilot episode of Boardwalk Empire. He is an 11-time DGA Award nominee, having also received nominations for the feature films Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, The Age of Innocence, Gangs of New York, The Aviator, Hugo, and The Wolf of Wall Street, and for the documentary George Harrison, Living in the Material World. In 1999, Mr. Scorsese was presented with the Filmmaker Award at the inaugural DGA Honors Gala, and in 2003, he was honored with the DGA's Lifetime Achievement Award. Following a recent screening of Silence at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Scorsese spoke with fellow director Alexander Payne about the making of the film. Their conversation touched on Mr. Scorsese's 50-year journey to bring the film to the screen, his desire to find the simplicity in each shot of the film, and the thematic inspiration he got from the landscapes of Taipei while filming. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, thank you, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Alex, for doing this. I know I'm keeping you up late. <laughs> All right. Uh, these events like this, early in the film's release, are kind of like a baptism for me. Um, people gather, your, your community gathers to gaze upon the visage of your new child and uh, congratulate the exhausted uh, but hopefully very proud parents. So congratulations on this magnificent film. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Re thank really you. magnificent. Thank it you. was my second time, and I got a lot more out of it, even the second time. It, the ideas and uh, sank in a lot more. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we really... Uh, Myself and Thelma and Emma and everybody we kind of finished the film only about a, two weeks ago. Yeah. When did you rap? Rap? Rap, yeah. I don't think we have, actually. <laughs> I, I, I think, I, I, quite honestly, I'm in the end uh, credits with our sound effects, and they just went out. And I said, leave it that way. Yeah. Just the last two or three cards are a dead silence. I said, fine. Just, what do you want to shine it up and polish it for? Let's just... Let's keep it going, I thought. Am I, it's, for me, it's a picture that doesn't end, I guess. It's something I've been aiming towards for so much of my life, and then it finally gets uh, realized in this form that you see now, uh, meaning that over the years, it, may have been, it obviously would have been a very different film. 
That was going to be my first question. Uh, I read that you first had the idea to make the film in 1989 when you were overshooting with Kurosawa, and you read the book. Is that right? Well, yeah. It comes out of the, uh, well, it comes out of my own background of Roman Catholicism in, in the early 50s in, in New York, which was a, a heyday of uh, 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 Roman Catholicism. Uh, the Cardinal Spellman rule. The whole, uh, still the sense of the Catholic Church as going my way. You know, it's changed. Uh, uh, but I was an altar boy. I was very much involved. There was a mentor priest that uh, was a diocesan priest. And I, he was my, myself and many of my friends, I'm a sort of mentor between the ages of, I was 11 to 17. And he helped form my life in a way by, uh, he was more American uh, than Italian. So uh, uh, he opened our eyes and minds to the rest of the, the to America. Uh, and taking opportunity to not living, not continuing to live in the uh, shackled mind of a kind of medieval village, although that has its uh, times uh, uh, benefits. But uh, with this other world that was out there past Houston Street, you know, there was a lot out there. It gave us Graham Greene, Dwight MacDonald, Memoirs of a Revolutionist, uh, oh, uh, Camus. I mean, you know, it, it, this sort of thing. So I wanted to be like him, so I decided I'd be a priest and... Um, Asthma helped that because I couldn't really uh, be participant in uh, too much uh, street uh, activities and of any kind. Uh, in any in any event, um, I made it for about almost a year in a preparatory seminary. Then was, uh, um, uh, as they say these days, invited to leave. Was that right? Up, did, did you do that right after high school? You, uh, of high within high school, first to second. It was about fifteen, and wound up at Cardinal Hayes High School, which actually worked out very well. And then, so for me, um, uh, this these themes were themes that were something that I didn't separate from anything that I was interested in, whether it was Thomas Hardy or or. Uh, 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 Broadway musicals, <laughs> you know, with Rogers and Rogers and Hammerstein or or, uh, or Lerner and Lowe. I mean, all this uh, the the lyrics or the Three Penny Opera, the the Three Penny Opera, which was kind of a kind of a an impression of the neighborhood I grew up in. You know, uh, it really it really was. Um, I went to see it two or three times, and then the lyrics to the to the lyrics of. Um, uh, Karma Capalbo, I think, and Mark Blitzstein version. I'm talking about in the early 50s. Theater de Lee. But anyway, I was more... I, the, the thing is that the themes always stayed with me for all those years, and so once I was able to express myself with pictures and movies, um, Mean Streets has it to a certain extent, as Paul Schrader's uh, script of Taxi Driver has it, another, another, another uh, perception, but it's there. Uh, Raging Bull definitely has it. And that was the end of something. And then started all over again, and that was to be Last Temptation of Christ. And when I finally got to make that, it was supposed to be made in 83, but it was canceled. So um, uh, it finally came together in 88. And the, uh, there was a lot of controversy, and uh, people were, were condemning the film, but they hadn't seen it. So it was Tom Pollock and all of us. Uh, uh, we all said, okay, let's just screen the picture for all the groups. You know? And we did in an afternoon on, uh, in New York. Uh, and afterwards, we had a little dinner at uh, a hotel nearby, and anyone we said who would be interested could come and join us and talk. And uh, it was uh, um, uh, t uh, the only person who really was who came over there. There were a couple of others, but the one who was really the most uh, interesting was Archbishop Paul Moore of the Episcopal Church in New York of St. John the Divine. Uh, and he was there with his wife, and he had dinner with us, and we started talking, and he told us 
story of his life and uh, how he, what he liked about the film or the themes in the film at least. Um, uh, and finally he said, I have a book for you, I'm gonna send you. And so that's how it started. Two days later I got the book, tried to read it, didn't get it. I really had, uh, had, had you, you know, seen the Shinoda film? No, I didn't even know Shinoda had made a film. Uh -huh. And I know Shinoda from the 70s in Japan. You know, I just saw him a few weeks ago in Tokyo. Um, and uh, Shinoda is one of the greats, along with Imamura and uh, Oshima at that time. And, and so uh, it, it took about a year or so I got involved with Goodfellas, and, and I, I agreed to do uh, play Van Gogh in uh, Kurosawa's film Dreams. And this was for different reasons, a long story, but bottom line is he asked Francis Coppola, and Coppola said, sure, Marty will do it, just ask him, you know. <laughs> And so uh, I wound up, uh, uh, we were over schedule on uh, Goodfellas, and Kurosawa was waiting uh, in Hokkaido. And we got there, and um, uh, when we finished shooting uh, the sequence, uh, went down to uh, Tokyo and took a bullet train to uh, um, Kyoto and finished the book on the bullet train. And I knew immediately I wanted to make it. I said, somehow I've got to make a film into this. How? How? What does this mean? I mean, what I mean by that is that my my uh, personal concerns in terms of uh, religion, or if you want to call it spirituality, whatever it is, be be uh, was so inter inter interlocked with uh, Roman Catholicism and the iconography of Roman Catholicism, and temptation uh, examining the idea of the incarnation and examining it as Paul Moore said, <clears throat> Christologically correct, which is fully human and fully divine, right? Okay, so we go with that. I mean, we don't have to agree with that. I'm just saying this is where we're going and this is what we believe. And so um, having done that, there was more to go. There's more. I don't know where. And it's got to go deeper and um, maybe you're too self-absorbed. You're, you know, a wild, you know, making films in this crazy world and everything else. But there was something that happens at the end of the story that indicated that... Um, there is more to know, obviously, but more more than you ever thought. Uh, that uh, particularly since you've seen the film, I could talk about it. And the apostasy of Rodriguez, rather than being a defeat in terms of his Christianity, is um, he finally gets it. He finally understands it, and I didn't know I didn't know what that meant. And I started working on a script with Jay Cox. Um, the Vittorio and Mario Cecchigori got, got us the rights at the time in 1990, and we got only third or halfway through the script and I couldn't do it. You couldn't do it in what way? I didn't know where it was going. I got involved with the politics, I got involved with the, the cultural clash, uh, I got involved with uh, uh, Catholic theories, or not theories, but, but um, uh, uh, dogma, um, particularly uh, the political situation in Catholic Europe uh, and the invasion, so to speak, of uh, missionaries in the, the Far East, the well-intentioned uh, zeal, which uh, unfortunately was also um, a form of a violence too towards the towards the uh, Asian, um, and so all of this, uh, there were so many things that I loved in the book, and so many I loved particularly the idea of his Calvary, his his uh, stations of the cross, so to speak. But then I'm saying, well, then again, he he, he regards himself as Christ. That's not right. 
You know, we have to get past that. And I always want to make a story about a, a person who becomes a cleric, who becomes someone who supposedly selfless and is a, um, a pastor, so to speak, um, who he or she would have to first get past their selves, their pride, before they can open up really to other people. Uh, and this was a fascinating, and, and somehow all that was coming together. I was going to do it in a modern world, but it was coming together in this story. And so uh, we got involved with the script that way, stopped doing it, and, uh, and when we did, uh, it was a long story then of a combination of two different things. One, um, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the Italians got mad at me, and they, they were going to sue me for not making the film. And I kept saying, I have a script, I'll be right there. <laughs> and I didn't, you know. And uh, my, my representative at the time said, do you really want to keep going with this thing? I said, yeah. And that got more complicated because one of the Italians, uh, uh, the, the, one of the owners of the, the property was incarcerated, became a senator, incarcerated in jail. And it was right before Berlusconi uh, took over. And um, anyway, this went on and on until finally I tried again. I kept rereading the book and rereading it. Uh, the book fell into the hands of some people who were working for the other Italians, and they claimed they owned the rights, and they started extorting money from us. And this goes on and on, and, they, and my agents and managers saying, do you want to do this? Do you want to pr pr pursue this? I said, yeah, yeah, there's something about it. And I kept working on the book and writing notes and writing notes and um, getting involved with uh, the, uh, getting involved with Shinto, actually, you know? I'm trying to understand that, what Liam Neeson says in the film, which is, what Endo says is that the Japanese can't conceive of anything that transcends the human. That's in the book. And I said, what is that? How, how do you, that's interesting. And then because I, going to Kyoto and uh, going to the, 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 um, the Japanese inns and realizing that the garden is, it, there's no distinction between the, uh, the room and the garden. Um, the idea of reading, uh, my wife at the time gave me uh, uh, Tanazaki's book, In Praise of Shadows where he talks about the emptiness. So we consider, a Westerner may, may consider a Japanese house empty. He said, but if you sit there at a certain place, or almost any, any part of the room, it changes all day because the light. I say, um, the idea of uh, uh, we, we in the West like shiny bathrooms and that sort of thing, everything is the other way, you know, where it has the, where the, um, uh, the patina is more important. You know, so it's another way of thinking. Another way. All this went on for many years. Uh, in the meantime, trying to hold them at bay, and uh, uh, I'll try to wind this up as fast as I can. But um, it became so complicated, and then um, I was able to finally. And I think it took till 2005 until I did departed to to understand that um, departed was a movie that we, it was it was. Interesting situation because by the time that film ends, uh, everybody's killed. They're, 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 they're all informers. There's no morality. It's all moral ground zero. And I said, I can't do another picture that we can't. We have to come up from this somehow. You know, whether it's a good movie or bad or mediocre, I, that's aside the point. It's making the picture, it's living with it. It's living with it, right? So you got to live with the characters. You got to, you, you have to, you also have the way I, done over the years, you behave like the characters, you, in, in a sense, you think like them. So with those things in your mind, after a while, you know, it's, it's a very difficult thing. The other thing that, was, that uh, shaped, finally, the writing of the script was um, just living. Uh, and uh, uh, I must say, uh, it was 2000, 1999, 2000, um, 
a new child, and uh, at a, a child at, a, at an older age is somewhat different from my two older daughters when you're younger. Um, family, illnesses, uh, parents dying. So all of these changes somehow worked together to finally made me say, made me realize that the picture had to be something stripped down and pure, if I can get to it visually too. And also to take away the references to Japanese cinema. You know, in other words, I, I had thought, I have to, I, oh, I can only frame the way Ichikawa framed the beginning of this film called uh, Harakiri. Just look at the frames in the titles title sequence alone. Or he made the film Samurai Rebellion, which uh, the film is better than the title, but it has a, uh, it's really quite good, Mifune and One Nakadai. Of my favorites Nakadai. Yeah, isn't amazing? And then the credit, the opening sequences, just the shots are amazing. I said, well, that's what it's gotta look like. I don't do that. I'm not Japanese, I don't do it. I don't think that way, I don't see that way. And so ultimately I had to relinquish that, I had to let go of everything really, and, and let it come let it come to me. And so in 2006, the end of 2006, Jay Cox and I got together and we wrote the script finally in about a few weeks. So in a way, it's, it's, the film was made when, in a way, it was supposed to be made, that it's a different film now from what it would have been 27 years ago. And maybe you prefer what it became now. Oh, I, I certainly do. And I do think it was a matter of um, dealing with... Um, uh, a number of things, and one of which is a sense of claustrophobia as opposed to being tedious. Then opening up in vistas, and then more claustrophobia is in this cell, you know. Uh, and it was very funny because it was myself and uh, Rodrigo Prieto and uh, David. David Webb, is he here? David? There he is. Hi, David. Assistant director. Oh, David, this is my. Yes, he had an amazing job. <laughs> amazing job. And throughout earthquakes and typhoons, he was always very calm. <laughs> but we'd go and we'd, we'd aim, and I said, I have designed the shot, move it this way, and they cut from here to here. And we realized that no matter where you cut in that cell with the bars, you know, it looks like you're in the same place. <laughs> so that makes you think, hmm, what's really important here? What's important is if you're shooting on the back of Rodriguez, then maybe he should be a little three-quarter. You know, and then punch around to a close-up, you know, and this sort of thing, and that's the way it had to be designed. But the the key um, the key thing I think really was trying to find a simplicity. Uh, I don't know if I got it as far as uh, in a way we did. I mean, I I imagined incredible shots of uh, mountains and that sort of thing. And and uh, finally, when we got to tai Taiwan, and we did the location scout there after many years of other location scouts in other parts of the world. Um, when I got to the, when they took me to the tops of these mountains, and I, and I do have to reiterate, it is funny, but like I'm a Manhattan, you know, when I lived out here for 13 years, I had cowboy boots, it was great, you know, but in Manhattan, I'm, you know, put me in a building, elevator, bring me up, 34th floor, thank you. <laughs> That's it. So me, they had people helping me and getting me up, uh, because as you're getting older, it's a little tricky, you put your foot the wrong way on the wrong rock. And you snap your ankle in your middle of nowhere. So you had to be very careful. Uh, and so we, uh, when I looked on the mountaintop too, especially where that hut was, and Dante said, I think we could build the hut here. And I said, well, it's far. And I looked over and I saw, place the camera here. It's telling us what to do. Now put the actors through it. Um, 
And we went with that. They were, they were designed editing sequences, there's no doubt, but usually those are the ones I'm discussing in the, uh, uh, the jail cells or the, um, oh, for example, in his cell in, uh, uh, in Macau when he's writing that letter and he's saying, I, 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 I think of Jesus' face, the face I saw at Evera, et cetera. I see his face and we cut not to Jesus' face but to Rodriguez's face and suddenly he's in bed and he's looking. Uh, again, that's his identification with Jesus, which is his undoing, ultimately. And then, when do you cut to the full face of Jesus? And they said, and they were asking me, is the Jesus face painted on the wall? I said, no, no, it's face of Jesus. You cut to it. You just cut to it. Well, what about the background? It doesn't matter. The background doesn't matter. I said, you just cut what he sees. It's what he knows. And it cuts on the line, feed my lambs, and then cut, feed my sheep. And I get chills to think of it with these eyes. Uh, it, it, it became, you know, choosing which image of Jesus to, to use. Um, it was that kind of simplicity we were going for. We we found that we were uh, we were able uh, with visual effects to make bigger shots of the Macau Harbor, but never use them. Never use them. It doesn't matter where they are. They're in a place where they they can be, and then they go to a place where they're not supposed to be. Simple. Uh, I heard it was a really hard, I didn't hear it from David necessarily, but I've heard it was a difficult and somewhat arduous production period. Is that true? You uh, suggested it was very physically exhausting. Uh, yes. What was it like? Uh, well, Taipei was great. I mean, the city is beautiful and uh, I don't know, it's just the people were amazing. And uh, uh, the, well, I mean, actually, we did have uh, some sets in a studio. Uh, not interior, but um, exterior that were built. And um, and so working in the studio closer to the hotel, it wasn't so bad. But the the uh, uh, the mud was quite... A, I'm not used to that kind of thing. Particularly, I tend to be um, impulsive on set, so I jump up usually after each shot. <laughs> you can't jump with mud. <laughs> you can't. I literally, at one time, I, they would take me and I'd move and my boot would come off. And I couldn't get to, it was like one of those dreams where you can never get to somebody, you know. Um, and they're speaking in Japanese, you know, and then the Chinese crew. And Australia, so, you know, at that point you learn, calm. If you're complaining about any of it, don't complain, this is what you wanted, this is what you do. Um, just shut up, do your work. You know, and go with it, go with it. I mean, go with the, when it began to get hot, that was hard, that was a problem, the last two weeks of shooting. But, um, but uh, the, the actual climbing and uh, um, the scenes in the tank were, were pretty, pretty controlled in Taichung. But uh, the actual mountain, once we got to those mountaintops, I gotta tell you, the second week of shooting, we did that scene up on the mountaintop where they were all kneeling in, in a circle in prayer. It's before Mokichi has to go down to the village and be taken. And it starts to rain. And once I saw that wide shot, I just I stood a little, I don't know, David, and I had a guy named Tony from New Zealand who would, who would help me up. He said, come along, son, you take a big guy. And uh, I looked down, I said, well, that's the shot, that's the scene, that's the movie. It's the prayer. And the landscape gave us that, and the, the positioning, and by the way, the Japanese actors, you know, was along with, of course, Andrew and, and Adam, but the, uh, the relationship of Andrew and Adam to the Japanese actors, they were always very, um, they were never really out of character, in a sense. Uh, they were always on whenever you needed them to be. So they were like a, they were like, a uh, mm, like an anchor for us. 
And they're phenomenal. Your Japanese cast is just off the hook. Can you talk about casting them? We and cast most of them in 2009, and one of the uh, that was the closest we had gotten to, sh to making the film. And then that canceled, too. Um, but 2009, we went to Japan. We went to Nagasaki. Uh, Dante, Ferretti, uh, Emma, um, uh, Ellen Lewis, and um, we met Eriko Miyagawa. Um, and she became our translator and uh, kind of assistant to, to us in, in translating to the uh, Japanese actors. But we, we um, went to um, Nagasaki, went to Sotomi. Sotomi is the village outside of Nagasaki that Tomoji is based upon, that Endo, the writer, based it on. And in, in Sotomi, there's a um, Endo uh, museum. And that day was a, a beautiful beautiful day there was no no fog of any kind and we just were on the balcony and we could see on the terrace and we could see way out they said see those little dots out there that's goto and uh, so these were the places in the atmosphere uh, the way the trees the types of trees i began to understand more about the trees and the and so uh back in tokyo um ellen was working with uh, uh, a japanese casting agent and um we met all the these actors that you see in the film uh, particularly Issei Ogata, who's plays Inoue, you know, who's, this guy, have you ever seen this incredible, this guy's amazing. The, he came in, he was in 2009, he, he did, he, the way he moved and what he did, he transformed himself right in front of us. So Ellen and I looked at him and said, go this way. I said, never thought of the character in that way before. Yeah. Before he walked in. Yeah, never. And, and, and on top of that, um, uh, I see on the list the name Shinya Tsukamoto. I said, Shinya Tsukamoto, I know that name. It's the, is that the guy who did Tetsuo, the Iron Man, hmm. back in the 80s? That black and white, crazed, hallucinatory, avant-garde, I don't know what, you know? <laughs> and then he made this other thing, which I don't know what, a sort of black and white film called The Snake of June, and, and with a woman, um, uh, uh, Cora... Um, oh, yeah. The Akura, Snake of June? A Snake of oh. June. It's very, very beautiful, and... Uh, uh, he he's out. It was like an avant-garde filmmaker. His last film he did was another version of Fires on the Plain wow. that they showed in Venice. And uh, he also acted it as Ichi the Killer in that crazy uh, uh, Mike film. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I said, that's not the same guy. It can't be. And I looked at them. And I said, he is. What's he doing here? And he came in, and I looked at him. I said, but you're a master. I said, you, you know. And he was trembling. And his tears were in his eyes. And he said, I must do this. I said, okay, come on in. You know, and he played Mokichi beautifully. He was, I think, you know, he really, really did. Um, uh, we had a number of, of Japanese directors acting in it. Uh, the one who was the, who was the uh, one of the samurai uh, in the moment where uh, he's talking, uh, they're interrogating, interrogating uh, Rodriguez for the first time, and they're all out in the courtyard, and the one who says, my English is bad, and he then starts yeah. speaking in Japanese. He's a, a director of a, a kind of wild, uh, uh, avant-garde, uh, horror films. Uh, uh, his name is Sabu. Uh, and then there's um, Rio Caso, who uh, plays Juan, who gets beheaded. Um, and uh, I'm forgetting one other. Um, but there are a number of directors who just came in and started working with us. Yeah. I'm being given one minute, but I have one oh, more no. question. Sorry. I, I think you have to get to your Talk PGA thing. Uh, you're well known. You, you talked about wanting to get rid of your uh, references to Japanese films that you would have wanted to get in there or or imitate or be inspired by. However, you are known for uh, showing films to your cast and crew in pre-production. 
and I'm wondering what you might have shown them. Well, the only one I showed, um, not necessarily the cast, just the uh, my crew was Ugetsu. Mm -hmm. uh, recently restored, by the way. Recently restored by, by Karakawa, yeah. and who's distributing this film in Japan, and the Film Foundation. Mm -hmm. So we were able to restore it, and in the restoration of this black and white film, which was the early 50s, uh, we were able to have, uh, there was this great cinematographer named Kawatsu Miyagawa. And it's, anything he did was like poetry. Uh, and uh, his assistant cameraman's still alive. Me, uh, and um, uh, he was able to grade the film with us. He was there. He made a drawing of each shot, knowing where the light was coming from. And the problem was the generations, uh, the, the, the original negative was not in very good shape. And it was a matter of the grays, lights, and the darks, and uh, that sort of thing. But Ugetsu was the first Japanese film I saw, and it was on television in New York, uh, dubbed in English. And I had never seen anything quite like it. And uh, that led me to Kurosawa. And, and, and of course, by that point, the, there was a massive uh, influx of uh, Japanese cinema and Japanese culture by the late 50s. So um, that was the only one. And we do, uh, there is obvious references to it in the boat scenes at night that we shot in a tank. Um, this is pretty, the mist, the mist we had there, but we added just a little. And the drum as a beat. Um, and the sense of um, a mystery that he doesn't know where he's really going. They're losing the other guys in the boat, and he says, we're losing them, and nobody answers him. Uh, so that was definitely, we had that Im those images on the set, on a computer, and I'd show the position of the boat and that sort of thing. And in the conception of the film, now that you're, if you don't mind my saying, standing fully beside them, did you think about Bergman and Dreyer at all? with uh, uh, films about faith and about silence. Well, uh, Bergman, of course, you know, I mean, the first Bergman film I saw, I guess, was uh, Seven Seal, which was a big impact, and then Wild Strawberries, and uh, Smiles of a Summer Night, too, but I was, you know, 14. I didn't get it. So <laughs> I never quite got it. Um, uh, later on, yes, but when the first, I didn't quite understand. Uh, the Bergman films, the trilogy particularly, the one that with Winter Light. Yeah, Silence Winter, and Winter Light. Si Silence yeah. and Winter Light and Through a Glass Darkly. Yeah. When she says uh, God is a spider. And she's, and she's uh, having this uh, breakdown in this room and it was absolutely terrifying. She has a helicopter and she imagines God as a spider. And then uh, particularly the ending of Winter Light where this uh, minister has to go to a church way out of uh, uh, where he lives, uh, far away, and... Um, a series of things occur. Uh, bottom line is uh, the, there's a, uh, I would think, uh, uh, a story about doubt, a religious doubt, very strongly, uh, that nobody, you know, people say not many people come to the, your your um, um, uh, rituals anymore, and that sort of thing. It doesn't matter. But the, I believe Bergman's father was a minister, and so Gunnar Borstam plays it very straight. And by the end of the film, he finally gets to the church he's supposed to be doing this um, ceremony. And um, after all this drama in the picture, uh, he comes out in his uh, chasuble and turns and looks at the church, and the church is empty. He goes on with the ceremony. I said, wow. You know, that's quite beautiful. That's quite beautiful. He has to go on with the ceremony. And then, of course, Dreyer is, for me, it's, it's uh, Ordet. And um, uh, uh, Day of Wrath, but Ordet mainly. Ordet's the one that I saw once in late 1968, 
and um, can't see it again. It's too good. <laughs> it, it's too moving and too too disturbing. I don't know what. I just can't watch it. It's amazing. <laughs> okay, it's amazing. We're amazing. getting the bums rush, and I okay, know you have to going, go. To, he yeah. has one more event this evening. Thank you. Thank so you. Much for Thank coming. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this DGA Q&A. Check out past episodes of the podcast by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. We'll have a lot more episodes coming your way over the next several weeks, so stay tuned. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Director's Cut on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.